You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. This morning? All right, nice. How awesome is it to be led in songs of praise and worship by such a group of talented people, amen? That is awesome. I get to live in the same house with one of those dudes. It's awesome maybe for like 10 minutes every Sunday, you know? Way up here. But it's all good. And how awesome is it to be in the same room with people, not just because this room happens to be air-conditioned, but because we all share the same King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's get into it. Um, Yeah, but I hope everyone's having a good summer before you get into reality. That's fun. It'll be raining tomorrow. Reality. Reality for you. Psalm 25 this morning. Uh, Now, Psalm 25 is a very unique psalm. Uh, Just a bit of background. It is a psalm of David. That's what we read at the top. Um, It is not titled anything more than that. It is also a psalm of lament or petition, depending on who you ask. The singer makes their complaints known to God, lamenting to God, and asks God in petition uh, for love, mercy, and guidance. The psalm is quite vague. It's not given to any specific situation like the other psalms, like when David sinned, or maybe Israel won this battle, or this thing happened, and then this psalm was written. So the psalm is very vague, and which tells us that it was probably used as a hymn by the nation as a whole. The title of David simply representing the people as a whole since David was their king. Um, Now there are two other interesting features about this psalm that we probably would never pick up if someone, like someone did for me, just sit down and draw it for you so that you'd understand it. Um, So I don't blame you if at first this psalm makes no sense to you and it is the most confusing thing you've ever read. Um, The psalm is an acrostic Like the Psalm 145 AB preached on last week, the Psalm is an acrostic, which means that every verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's what an acrostic is. Yeah. So every verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This helped people remember all these large um, chunks of text and keep it in their minds, not just for, you know, memory's sake, like how they remembered the stories of Exodus and the stories of Genesis and all that, but also for the sake of just putting words to their emotions to God, which much of the Psalms are written for. You know, you couldn't find the words to express your emotions to God. You remember this Psalm and you just use that. So it could have been used for memory's sake in that. Um, The other feature of this Psalm is that it is chiastic in structure. It's a chiasm, which is just a fancy way of saying that the ideas presented in this Psalm are like They're presented and then presented again in reverse order. So the beginning has the same idea as the end, and then as you move in, the same ideas. Get it? That's how he drew it out for me. That's exactly how I remember it. Uh, This is also a memory device, but it also helps us to see that the emphasis this psalm is giving us is like where it meets. So that point in the middle is like the most important part this psalm is pointing us to, the central idea of the psalm. And so let's have a look at those. 
In this psalm, they come to verses 10 and 11. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. So here we are presented with the most central themes of the psalm, the key, of, the key ideas of the psalm. It is the climax, the height of the psalm, and on the one hand we are presented with a God whose ways are loving and faithful, and on the other hand we are presented with a psalmist who sings with great iniquity. And since this was probably a psalm people sang together, we can put ourselves justly in the place of that singer. And that's the truth. We sing, though we sing, we sing with great iniquity. This is the truth and there is no contrast, friends, quite like it. There is no contrast like the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. The burning goodness of God as a consuming fire and the wretchedness of rebellious creatures pulled, God pulled from the dirt. And yet, friends, it is this contrast between these two things that makes God's love for us so scandalous, His grace to us so amazing, and His mercy to us so incomprehensible. We fail to understand it. And remembering this contrast, friends, the only reason we could possibly receive love is because God is love. The only reason we could possibly receive mercy is because God is full of mercy. And the only reason we could possibly receive grace is because God is gracious. And the psalmist knows this. The singer knows who God is. They know just how great he is, how marvelous he is, how he dwells in an unapproachable light, immortal and invisible. The singers know who God is and they know who they are. He knows who he is, a stench of their iniquity rises up before God. And so knowing the goodness of God, his love, his mercy, the psalmists are confident to ask for forgiveness. He says in verse 11, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Because of who you are, forgive me. Because you are merciful, have mercy, he says, because you are gracious, be gracious to me. Knowing fully who they are and who God is, the psalmist falls on their knees in repentance. 1 John 1 verse 8 to 9 tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Nothing like starting at the end, from the, the climax of the psalm. And its aim is to show us who God is and bring us to our knees in humble repentance before Him. Forgive me for my iniquity. We, we sing together. This is what we sing together. But as the psalm continues... There is much more to this plead of forgiveness than to be just cleansed of our sins, but it is also a plea to be taught, a plea to be transformed by God. The psalm continues in verse 4 and 5. Show me your ways, Lord. 
Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. And again in verse 8, he says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And so this begs the question. First, what are his ways? And secondly, why does the psalmist even want to know them in the first place? Now the scriptures are endless when they discuss the ways of the Lord. The ways of the Lord are described as loving and faithful, just here in verse 10. And in Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, they are described as righteous, perfect, enlightening. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So, in short, simply put, these ways are God's laws. Now, the law is something we don't like to talk about sometimes, something we don't often talk about. That's like Old Testament stuff, we tend to say. We don't like to talk about them because they are so complex. They are so difficult to understand and ultimately impossible to fulfill. God's laws reveal to us the immutable, incomprehensible holiness and glory of the Almighty God. His absolute separation from that which is defiled and unholy. Now these laws have been revealed to us throughout history in several different stages, right from the beginning of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Now in the Garden, Adam, the very first man, could be described as the perfect reflection of God. As Adam, as perfect as any reflection can be, right? You could say that he imitated God. And this is something that Adam did naturally from day one. When God formed him out of the dust, God's ways, God's laws was in Adam's mind and in his heart. This was all he focused on. The law dominated his mind naturally. It was just the way he was built. But as we keep reading, of course, sin enters the world. Evil enters, then came the fall. Adam's heart was darkened, and behold, no longer was God's law enthroned in his heart. But what took its place was hungry, ruthless, relentless sin. This became his nature, overtaking the ways that once stood in his mind and were written on his heart. This was his nature now, corruption, lust, greed, pride, envy. His heart was darkened, and the world around him was darkened. And so, God now had to send his law back to his people in a new way. And so God brings back his law, but this time engraved in stone. On Mount Sinai, as we read, the laws were given to God's chosen people through Moses, but this time it was no longer their nature. Their nature had changed, so so God gave it to them in a negative. So when we read the Ten Commandments, all thou shalt not, Right? Thou shalt not. Don't do this. Don't do that. And that's how we tend to think of the law when we, when we think about it. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's just a bunch of rules. 
telling us what not to do. But the truth of the matter is, as Romans 8 tells us, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, the law couldn't save anyone in the end. And that's because no one could possibly fulfill it. No one was strong enough to fulfill it, to walk perfectly in the ways of God. But then we ask, but if no one could possibly fulfill it, then what is its purpose in the first place? Now, fortunately for us, this is not something we have to spend a long time thinking about because the Bible is quite clear, the purpose of the law. Romans 7, uh, 7 to 12, Paul tells us, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So before the law came, people lived according to their nature, their sinful nature. Paul gives an example of coveting. Before the law came, no one knew what coveting was, so that was a fine thing to do. And so they did that, but now they've been shown that it is a wrong thing. And so they knew. But now, thanks to the revealed law, they knew what was holy, righteous, and good. Now they knew God's ways, and the, the world around them knew God's ways. And they also knew that they couldn't possibly be obeyed. It's kind of like, imagine you go into like a really nice clothing store and you see something you really like, perfect fit, perfect colors, and then you have that mini heart attack when you catch a glimpse of the price tag. Every time. I only like what I can't get. It's, a, it's kind of like that. It's, it's, it was something that was so beautiful to, the, to Israel, so beautiful to us, to us, but yet so out of our reach. Galatians 3.19, Paul writes, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. And then we skip to verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now the law was our guardian. The law guided us until we could one day be justified by faith. The law, not by the law, and that day has come, and it came in the person of Jesus Christ. He says in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so coming to fulfill or to end the law, Jesus comes. Born in Bethlehem in a manger, as we remembered last month, and as A.B. preached on last week, was full of poop, according to his story. Animals everywhere, poop everywhere. This is the conditions that Jesus was born in. Um, And yet in that baby, in Christ, in that manger, from that day, you have the perfect person. Jesus was perfect. Hebrews 7, 26 tells of Jesus, the high priest, saying, Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He was holy, undefiled. Jesus now was the law in a tangible human being. Like Adam, God's law dominated his heart. The will of God was all he could think of and nothing else. God says of Jesus, the beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father says that of his Son, Jesus Christ. And now we have the law not in stone, but in flesh. But the truth is, this doesn't help us any more than the stones did. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was so perfect so righteous that he was killed for it. The highest-ranking religious officials in his time were so terrified by him. They were so intimidated by his righteousness that they killed him. So they didn't kill him for any wrong that he did because he did none but for his righteousness. And this new covenant commands us to live like Christ. But Christ was perfect. We can't be like that. We need a Savior. Unlike the old covenant, Under the new covenant, we aren't given like a list of laws we must obey. We are just told to follow Christ. But we can't do that. We can't keep the written law, written in stone, and we can't keep, we can't walk as Christ did. And so friends, what hope is there in us following his law? What hope is there for us following his law? Another hope that we have comes in the promises of God. Quoting the prophet Jeremiah, Hebrew tells us, Hebrews 10, verse 16 to 17, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. This is a new covenant that has come to us in Christ Jesus through faith. This isn't found in the Old Covenant. By His grace alone, God has promised to forgive our sins. More than that, He's promised to forget them. Instead, He will engrave His law on our hearts and on our minds, not on stones or tablets, just as it was with Adam, who cherished and delighted in God's law before the fall, and also in Christ. However, as we live In this world, in the flesh, fighting with sin every day, although we might delight and cherish and find our deepest joy in the laws of God in our hearts, we can only obey them imperfectly. We all fall short of God's glory, but thanks be to God, we have a Savior who not only died in our place and was resurrected, but lived every single day of his life on earth in perfect obedience to God's law in our place. And so by His Holy Spirit, 
we have the law in our minds, in our hearts, and though we long to obey them, we all fall short. But take heart, for we can sing with confidence with the psalmist as he sings. Remember, Lord, verse 6. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Friends, the ways of the Lord come together in Christ Jesus, who has fulfilled them. Therefore, we walk in God's ways not only through faith in Christ Jesus, but living under his lordship. Surrendering everything to him, as we say in this church, making all of life all about Jesus. This looks like imitating Christ. It looks like sacrificing as Christ sacrificed, as loving as Christ loved, forgiving as Christ forgave. To walk in the way of Christ is to reflect to the world around us who Christ is, who Jesus is, through the way that we live our lives. And this means sacrifice. This looks like serving the poor, looks like humility, like turning the other cheek, like faithfulness in marriage. This looks like um, purity and holiness. It looks like, as Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And friends, the society we live in today hates God's law. It hates it because it is unnatural. Because for this world, sin is natural. The world hates God and stands in rebellion against Him. God's ways are bigoted, archaic. His ways are too strict, everyone says. How can you possibly follow that? It's way too strict. And so humans, as we've done from the beginning, is that we've decided to set our laws for ourselves. We will decide what the ways will be. We will decide for ourselves who we are. But this, friends, is the world that God calls us to live this out in. How quickly we are, this is me included, I, can't, I don't know how many times I've done this, but how quickly we are to drop our Christian name tag when things get awkward, right? When, if you were to say you're a Christian, things would get weird. So I'm not a Christian, don't worry about it. No, Christ calls us to walk in His ways, not just when things are cool or convenient, but as long as we have breath in our lungs. Um, the beginning of last year, one of the first stories I learned was a story of Polycarp. You might know it. Um, so almost 2,000 years ago, in what is now Izmir in Turkey, uh, it was called Smyrna back then. The bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was to be executed. Now he was your typical old man that everyone loves with a big beard. He's probably fat. Everyone loves him. Wise. Knew a lot of things. He was respected. He was an apostle of John. So he had a lot of authority, and he was condemned to be burnt alive for the crime of following Christ. To declare Christ as Lord in that time, in the Roman time, Polycarp um, effectively said that there is a power that is higher than Caesar, that Caesar isn't the highest Lord, but that there is someone higher than him. And for that, the world around him hated him. Everyone hated him. Oh, those who didn't love him. So like the people who didn't know him, they hated him because he went into the um, 
the arenas and everyone would shout, away with the atheists. That's what they said. Because, because Christians didn't have like a tangible God that they could worship. And so if, they couldn't, if the Romans couldn't see it, then it probably didn't exist. And so they'd away with the atheists, kill him, burn him. And so after being dragged into this great arena, thousands of people watching, the Roman government, officers and rulers pleaded with Polycarp because they admired him so much. They pleaded with him. Just say Caesar is Lord and we won't have to kill you. And as we read from um, the account of his martyrdom, we read, um, then the council urging him and saying, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp, 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 sounds like a Pokemon, declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so on that day, he was put to death um, for failing to denounce Christ as Lord. Now, maybe in our lifetime, we'll never have to face this kind of extreme, hopefully. But this is what it looks like to walk in God's ways. Every day, making all of life all about our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. And so the question is no longer, what are the ways of God? But why are we to follow them? Now, countless times the Bible calls us to live godly, righteous, holy lives that look like the life that Christ lived. Ephesians 4, 1 tells us, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Philippians 1, 27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And again in Colossians um, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. This is Paul talking, uh, praying for the church in Colossae. And then 1 Thessalonians 2.12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into His kingdom and glory. And so let us consider it now. Why are we to walk in this way? Why should we live our lives in the ways of God? Now, many people bring forth many different opinions about this, about why we should live this way. But the opinion that I think the psalmist addresses here in this psalm is a very popular idea. And it is this, um, that if we live a certain way, God will save us. God will love us. God will bless us. But naturally, this is just how we naturally operate. I mean, if you want something, you have to earn it. And for all the work that you do, you expect to be rewarded. That's just how our society works. And so naturally, we bring these things into our Christian life. If I want God's love, I've got to live this way. Now let's look together at what the singer says, the psalmist says in verse 4 and 5 of this psalm. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. He says, for you are God my Savior. The psalmist doesn't sing, guide me in your truth so that you would be God my Savior, but because you are God my Savior. How awesome is that? 
He sings, because you have saved me, guide me. Titus 2.14 tells us about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now what comes first in that verse? Being redeemed in Christ or being eager to do what is good? We don't live, friends, we don't live godly lives for God's mercy, but because of it. And it is important we get this the right way around. Nothing we could do will ever be able to save us. Ephesians 2 tells us, uh, beginning of verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now what came first in that one? Being in Christ or the good works part? Now something we like to do as Christians, um, I notice that I do this from time to time, when, particularly when I'm feeling like distant from God. Something we like to do is we like to count up our like Christian brownie points, like how long we've spent praying today, or how long I've spent reading the Bible or in meditation, or how many, how many Sundays I've come to church and have sat here listening to this crazy dude preach, or how many days I've gone without drinking alcohol or watching porn or cussing or things like that. We count these up and we say to ourselves, even sometimes we don't even know we say these, even subconsciously we say to ourselves, surely now God will love me. We say, surely now my sins are forgiven. Now I can get into heaven. But friends, how wrong we've gotten this whole thing. We don't pray every day so that God would love us, but because God loves us. Amen. We don't read our Bibles or give generously or do whatever because God, so that God would forgive us, but because God has forgiven us. We don't come to church and sit and sing the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ so that He would be our Lord but because He is our Lord. Friends, we do none of these things so that God would save us. We do them because God has saved us. Now, friends, we don't live in God's ways as students, hoping to pass some exam in the sky, but we walk in God's ways as sons and daughters, raised as a father lovingly raises his children. We don't walk as pupils, hoping that we've won enough points to win something when the game's all over. But we walk as sheep under the guiding hand of our shepherd, our Lord Christ Jesus. Friends, walking in Christ, in His purity, in His holiness, in His righteousness, is our perfect freedom and our greatest joy. However, while we live in the flesh, until the day we are glorified with Christ. We can only do this imperfectly, but knowing who God is, loving and merciful and good, we should have confidence when we ask for forgiveness. Let's not shy away from God, pretending that we live some perfect lives, but let's trust that God is who He says He is, that He is loving, that He is merciful, that He is our Savior and that He is our Redeemer. Amen.
All right, let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy that we receive at your hand, the grace that you have shown us through Jesus, Lord. Father, guide us each day to walk in his ways, making all of life all about him, remembering that we do this not to earn anything, but because you have already given us everything through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.